Helen. Welcome. Almost 30 podcast. Hello. I was going to say, what's up? I was going to say, what's up? But I didn't. The work did you I've say Helen? Welcome. Yes. Helen. 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 Workshops, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I was with uh, some friends that have known me for a long time the other weekend. And the last time I was with them on a regular basis was before I moved to LA. So before us, before our marriage, yeah, honestly, <laughs> the before dark ages. 30. And one of them came up to me like one on one and was just like, Your energy is just so different. Mm-hmm. Like in a, in a good way, yes. it was very sweet. But it got me thinking, I was like, wow, like just thinking back or feeling back to my energy, you know, back in 2012, 13, mm-hmm. living in the city and bartending and doing all these jobs and just being a hoot. And um, just thinking about what I was like inadvertently manifesting back then. Wow. By being in that, in those stories, in that, in those patterns, in that energy or what I felt like I needed to maintain in order to survive what I was inadvertently manifesting. A bunch of assholes and um, just probably things I, I have to think about it and write it down. But mm-hmm. whether it was like health stuff. Mm-hmm. There was like no co-creation energy. No. Like there takes a consciousness and we're excited about our interview today to talk about manifestation, the science of with Dr. Tara Swart. Um, but there is such a you know, I really think about, I was doing the same where it was, I don't even know if I was manifesting, but there was no co-creation of mm-hmm. my conscious choice and decision to yes. participate in what I was getting out of my life and what I was seeing. I think, honestly, I, like every <laughs> basic person, I found the secret. That was the first mm. thing that I found and actually really, really worked to like a certain extent for my manifestation. And that's when I really started manifestation because it was almost like I was willing my way to thinking positively. And it was the conscious effort I had to make continuously to choose the better thought. Mm. And I think that's what I got out of law of attraction was not like think positive and everything will be good, but it was Reminder, a reminder for myself to choose the better thought over and over and over again, to be conscious of my thoughts, to write things down that I want, to be intentional. And it's missing quite a bit. And that's what TBM work really, really satisfies is sort of the holes that the law of attraction and the secret uh, has. But I, do, I did find that to be like a really, really helpful springboard. And that was like the first time I really consciously manifested. Yeah. What was the thing that you manifested with the secret for one of them? I, at that time, one of the things that I manifested was I had to leave that job I was in. Mm. So I was in the corporate world and um, my work environment was getting really toxic. 
I, w- I had a sexual harassment case with my boss that was just really traumatizing. And so that was, you know, it should, there was a hundred signs before I, I left. And so that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. But I also wanted to travel and I had found Justin. So I wanted to find him. So I needed money. Mm-hmm. So I needed money. I was like, I was living out of my means at that point. I was making $40,000 a year, just not really being smart about my money. And my grandfather, who was very successful in business um, for the first time in his life, like gifted mm-hmm. us, I think like $5,000. I don't know how much it was, but a certain amount of money that really was able to float me from leaving that job to the next job Mm -hmm. and then support me in going to that trip I went to in Patagonia. So we had never gotten money from him before. I didn't know where I was going to get money from, but I needed money to support me in the transition period because I didn't have any other source of income at that time. And so it was like that sum of money that would be my bridge between jobs and from moving to Chicago to New York. Yeah. Yeah, with money too, it's interesting, um, kind of like the judgment and stigma we ourselves put on the source of where it comes. A hundred. I literally said it, and I'm like, everyone's like, "Oh, you privileged." Blah, no, blah, blah. no, no. But it's like I think that's part of the block for some Facts. people because, like, sometimes money has come in from very interesting sources for me. <laughs> I was gonna make a joke. Oh, I don't tell even me more. No, but kind of like that where. I didn't need to do anything in order to get the money, mm-hmm. you know? And it feels like, wait, I didn't earn this. Wait is, wait, is that fair? Yes. And I've learned to trust and to not judge the way it comes in. Obviously, if it feels misaligned, like mm-hmm. that's something different. But if you're just judging it because you're worried about what other people will think, yes, then- 100%. I just think it- Yeah, that's the thing. It's like removing the shame around- whatever that is, like however it is the money comes in. And when I was in living in Los Angeles, when we finally got to Los Angeles and I had quit my full-time job to pursue blogging and getting myself in quite a bit of debt and I was serving and nannying and doing all these odds and ends jobs. One of the ways I made money was through this really, really, really weird thing. It was this Japanese company called Bomo. And they wanted to take videos of influencers showing off their like outfits or something. You guys, bizarre. But I made like $500 a video. They Mm -hmm. reached out to me randomly. Mm -hmm. I really didn't have to do much work. And I was able to make like enough money for my rent through these videos that I was doing, which will are probably in some crazy dungeon in the dark web. But it was like, this is an a source that I would have never known about. And then also too, let's travel Morocco. When I was doing that, I had a travel company. I would always make the money that I needed through that source or through random sources that, and opportunities that I had created. But yeah, I think that's a really good point about how we think the money will come in. Because I noticed that with Justin too. Mm -hmm. Like with him and his businesses, I'm like, he's like, oh, you know, I can't ask my parents or I can't ask this company for this or whatever. Um, and it's like, you have to remove all thought about where it can come from and where it cannot. Yes, because thinking about like the freedom that it provides in order to focus on what you really want to do and or takes the stress off of a certain part of the process that mm-hmm. you're in. I just think it's really, yeah. And same same with me. I feel like I've always had the most random forms of income, especially when I was in New York. Like bartending was my most stable But then I would travel to Boston for a day, probably every few weeks to do these, you know, you go go onto a website and a person would pop on and be like, hi, welcome. That was me in thousands of videos. And I would 
just go up there. But how did I, I it know. was like the most random, but it was, that was something that really kept me afloat. Yep. And then fit modeling was random as hell. But like I met someone who did it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I don't give it as much credit as I'm like thinking back now. But like those were like serious gifts for mm-hmm. when that allowed me to audition when mm-hmm. I could and, it's and huge. take classes for, it's huge. for acting. And, and I think the important part for me is like taking the stigma off of where I think money can come from and where it can't. You know, it's like, yep. honestly, the money can come from the weirdest places. Mm-hmm. You could win the lottery. You could win a giveaway on Instagram. You could inherit money. You could get a raise at work. You could start a new business and make money. You could get an offer for, like there's so many different ways that we can make money. It's like, I've had to com- come back to that over and over and over again that I'm gonna make money through a mm-hmm. certain way. I'm gonna make money through this way and really just try to stay open as much as I can to making money from any way possible because yes. I look at all these really, really wealthy people. I'm like, they have made money. What is it? The average millionaire has like six or seven streams of income, maybe even more. And so how can I create, first of all, those streams of income that are setting myself up to be successful anyways, but then also to never denying the possibility of a miracle mm-hmm. in any way. Mm-hmm. When we were in Cabo after our wedding, Justin was like talking to the valet to get the car up. And I went to go sit down at this couch and I found a hundred dollar bill on the ground. And I didn't tell him because he'd be like, P, you have to give it back. (laughs) And I literally found a hundred dollars, put it in my pocket and just went on my merry way. Yeah. It was my hundred dollars. I know. Well, that's good because then you circulate it too. A hundred percent. We're going to get hate mail. I know, honestly, they're like, where's my, you guys, it was in a random spot in like the middle of a corner in a dirt pile. And I felt like I deserved it. spit on it. I know, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, it's really fascinating. I'm curious what you guys, what your experience with that is or your view on Mm -hmm. like different forms of- And the shame or the resentment mm. that you have when other people, it's huge. That's something that Lacey talks about in TBM where it's like looking at where you are jealous Mm -hmm. or triggered Mm -hmm. and- seeing where that is showing you that it's time to up-level and expand and that it's possible rather than, oh, that'll never happen for me. It's like, no, you are feeling that way because you have yet to, you know, up-level to that, you know, I don't even know the term, but to that belief Mm -hmm. that you can Mm -hmm. experience that. So it's almost like a frustration. Yes. I had a friend, we have a friend who's a dear friend that recently launched something that she had saw someone else do months before. And I remember being with her when she saw this other person launch this thing. And she was like, why is she doing that? That is like da, 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 da. And she kind of had a little bit of, it's like a little jealous moment with it and was like jealous of this person Mm -hmm. doing this thing. And then she does a similar thing, not exactly the same thing. Six or seven months later, it's like her biggest launch, making the most money. She feels the most fulfilled. And it was that initial annoyance of like, why is she doing that? Yeah. Kind of like, who is she? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I think of that? And then she does it and it's like her most successful thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's that rethinking of like what we find annoying or what we find triggering or what we find ourselves being resentful of because that's like a great opportunity to look at what that is. And is it something that we want to do in the world? Is it something we want to express? Or is it something that, you know, we feel like we should be doing, but we're not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Are you manifesting anything right now? 
My man and my manifest. Oh, my house. Mm-hmm. I own a fucking house. We had a, a healer over the other day, Manuela. She's really beautiful, Manuela. Uh, and when she pulled up to the office studio, she's like, oh my God, I actually was in your house in my mind. Oh, wow. She's like, I actually know what it looks like. And she like drew it. She's like, you walk in, you mm. go here. She's like, your house exists. It's already there. She's like, this is like, you will be out of here soon. And your house is like already ready because that's what I've been working on manifesting forever. But that is a huge thing because that's not only me expanding into the house, but it's like me expanding into myself as a wife and as a mother and like Mm -hmm. being more serious about my, serious in quotes, about my life. Because when, in my perspective, living in an apartment with Justin, we've lived in apartments in, you know, Queens here, Etc. It's like that feels like the young kid mm-hmm. still. It feels totally. like this this phase of life. And to believe that I can afford to have a home mm-hmm. is like whoa. And I don't know if we'll buy per se, basically within this market. But to feel like I can live in a space that's really big and my own is like very expansive. I'm sure a lot of you listening have you know moved into a home, rented, bought, whatever. And I'm sure it was probably one of the most expansive moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I guess, what is that belief that you have now that I don't think you're blocked at all, but like, is there a certain story mm-hmm. that you have around mm-hmm. just that you're not? I don't think. I think yeah. it's hard because I'm more stable in my career than mm-hmm. my, part- my partner currently is. And I feel like that's a mm. little bit of a sure makes me waver a little bit. Yeah. So that. So I feel like if we were both on the same trajectory at this moment, it would be like, oh yeah, done. But I feel like a little bit, like I have to kind of hold back. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because I, mm-hmm. you know, it just feels like a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And I feel like at different seasons of our lives with our significant others, it's like, yeah, there might be a point at which like- mm-hmm, The dance. He fucking takes off mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, I'm like, mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. are a little either not slow, but just- mm-hmm little quieter and yes yeah what about you what am i manifesting i'm manifesting manifesting a, a couple of things actually i'm manifesting a producer mm. so someone that i really like i really connect with and want to mm-hmm. collaborate with and that i can with. and that i could also just be like express my own artistic vision with mm-hmm. and not have them like kind of dictate which is not what a producer is mm-hmm. but i think because i'm like so green in this creating music, it's like, I wouldn't want to be too impressionable. Mm-hmm. Like I would want to like direct everything and just kind of really hold true to my vision. So someone who's like jazzed about me, but also is incredibly talented. And I think I need a male energy. And then a car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can, we can go to get a car, but mm-hmm. like, I'm like, oh, I want to like manifest like, mm-hmm. just like a, a I have, I've never had like a car that I'm super excited about. Yes. And I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to either, I don't know if it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's buying a car, renting a car, or leasing a car, or maybe partnership of a car. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know. So um, that, and yeah, I think just, you know, money is one of those things for me that like I always feel provided for, but I do have work to do around yeah, I feel like I've inherited some worth around money and some anxiety around money, Mm -hmm. which I feel like the energy of money doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. jive with. 
So um, even though I can say and feel abundant and always provided for, there is kind of this like back of mind, which definitely comes from just like my upbringing of like, it's not going to stick around for too long. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like this very evasive thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm just working on that. And again, just always like being open to where it could come from. Mm -hmm. Not like the music might not Mm -hmm. provide the the money form of abundance, Mm -hmm. but it might be another form or maybe it will down the line. So being very open to how I'm being provided for while I'm doing all these creative things, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And not like being resistant to it. Because I feel like I'm resistant sometimes to certain forms of of being compensated. Mm. Like whether it's like a partnership and I'm like, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Because <laughs> that feels like you're selling a part of yourself a little bit. Yeah. I'm like a little resistant to that right now. I think that makes sense. But yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's something that comes pretty naturally to us to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, Lens, why are you just I know. saying yes? I don't know. I, there's seasons though. Actually, I had a thought about that. What was that? I had like a thought. It was like, oh, Oh, I was like, dude, sometimes, sometimes my like guides and my spirit team are just Mm -hmm. a little fucking aggressive. (laughs) And I was in the car and I was thinking about that partnerships and they were like, what would be the highest worth thing to do? Mm -hmm. Is it you promoting yourself Mm -hmm. or is it you promoting someone else? I know. I was like, I've got it. Thank you very much. But then it's like trusting the universe enough. Like, can you make up that gap? Yes. Make up that gap. That's the whole thing. You know, show me how I can make up the gap Mm -hmm. of whatever that is. Because I think a lot of times in life, we do things that we're like, oh, it's just for the money. It's not like we do it for the money, but there are times in which we're doing things specific for the money. And it's like, what's that Mm -hmm. energy? Mm -hmm. Not that my partnerships, I love every brand we work with, but there are times when I'm like, what? who do I look up to and are they doing what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Whether it's getting up at this time I'm getting up and eating the things I'm eating and spending their day the way I'm spending mm-hmm. it. You know, that kind of mentality, not just related to like how I'm making money. Sure. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Um, so we're talking to Dr. Tara Swart today, who is now a part of the To Be Magnetic team, mm-hmm. but she is just the most impressive. Oh, she's the best. She's a neuroscientist, medical doctor, executive advisor. Uh, she lectures at MIT. Uh, she's the author of the best-selling book, The Source. And she is just so passionate mm-hmm. and makes it very, very tangible. And I feel like her work with TBM has just been so profound for you know, the TBM community, who I'm sure a lot of you are here now. And thank you so much mm-hmm. um, for listening. But Adding the science Mm -hmm. to the more spiritual and tangible has been really impactful for me in Mm -hmm. order to like hit it home. Yes. Yeah. She is just incredible. She makes everything very simple and she takes like very dense, heavy neuroscience information and makes it very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And so we come at this conversation just like in the way Lindsay and I generally do, which is very intuitively through the science of manifestation, what's happening in our brain. Um, We talk about envy and jealousy and we really just let the conversation go where it be. But if you're interested in any of the TBM work or manifestation or really uh, the brain detail behind creating a life that you love. I think this is a perfect conversation. And we loved talking to Dr. Tara Swart. We laughed, Mm -hmm. we had fun. And I really know that you guys are going to enjoy this one. Yeah, she's the coolest. You can learn more about 
Dr. Tara at taraswart.com and then to be magnetic.com. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend the pathway, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the all encompassing membership. Yeah. And we actually have a Tara from To Be Magnetic speaking at in our membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in our membership, so we have a membership that is really, really powerful. We have workshops, we have extra content, we have downloadables, journal prompts, giveaways, live just hangs. T- live hangs. It's mm-hmm. it's just the best place ever. And we have one of the TBM coaches that's going to be doing a workshop specifically with our members, which is going to be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And thank you all for just being, you know, so, so engaged and so inquisitive along, you know, these five, six years that we've been doing this and just inspiring us with this type of content. You know, we always want to go deeper. We always want to be evolving and supporting one another and doing that. So thank you for your support. Thank you for subscribing. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. See you soon. I'm really excited to have you. I will never forget when you first started working with Lacey and the To Be Magnetic team. I'm on a few different group chats with Lacey. She's one of my dear friends. And Mm. um, she doesn't often come forward with really exciting news and information. You know, she is not one to just talk about what's going on with her in a really exciting and beautiful way. And she was so deeply excited to have you join the team. I mean, she came forward with the information, was like, oh, we have this this amazing woman that's going to be joining the team. And I've never seen her, I've seen her be that excited, but I've never seen her be that excited in a long time. So I was just so grateful for you to join. And it felt like the grounding force for her, you know, she's known the science sort of in her own way in a long time. And then to have you validate (laughs) a lot of uh, the manifestation work has just been really beautiful. So long time coming. Lacey's a friend, you're a friend, and we're excited to dig in today. I feel like there's so much as it relates to manifestation and the science behind it. And Lindsay and I are just pumped. Yeah, truly, truly. And we've been doing Lacey's work for a long time now, and it not a day goes by that we don't hear from someone in our community about them doing Lacey's work. So it's actually really, I know uh, a lot of people will, mm-hmm. will just connect with this episode. But I was actually, I was talking to Krista right before this, and I was like, do you think... Dr. Tara knew like years and years and years ago that something like this talk about manifestation would come about knowing the science for as long as you have and doing all the research. I'm like, was there ever this connection that you made to it? Because it just, it feels so perfect for us to Mm -hmm. hear the science and then the spiritual aspect. But were you feeling this years and years ago? I I felt it strongly around the time that I got divorced, so over 10 years ago, when I turned to more spiritual readings, really, to try to find my way out of it in the best possible way. And that's the first time I formally remember discovering manifestation and, you know, practice it well. I'd read about it before, but not practiced it, which I think is quite a common story as well. You know, it sounds great, but either you feel like you don't need it or it, you know, it sort of feels like a big commitment. Now that I'm really into it, I look back and I almost feel like children, they know about it, but it kind of gets squelched out of us. Like people say, oh, don't say such silly things or don't, you know, come up with these silly ideas. And so I think that I used to see and feel things when I was a really young child that were not explainable. And then because my education was very scientific, but it probably became less and less and less until I needed something more than just science to Mm -hmm. to sort of sort my own life out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this it's, 
it's one of my favorite things how in today's day and age that we are seeing how spirituality can live with science. And that's really mysticism, you know, from my perspective, like science and spirit is really this age's mysticism. When you talk about that, you know, people discover manifestation and it's it's too hard for them, or they just kind of see Mm -hmm. it as something that they can't do. What's happening neurologically for people where they feel like that seems nice, but you know, it's not something I could do long-term or it's not something that I could really uh, make work for me. In my experience, and I'd actually love to hear from you as well on this, because this is more in my experience, but being a scientist, mm-hmm. it's probably based on that, that a strong negative motivator gets us into action. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a, a really strong positive one will do that too, but not as strongly as a negative motivator. So I'm thinking, for example, when I had my wedding come up and I wanted to look a certain way and for the whole wedding to feel a certain way, I did a lot of things I wouldn't normally do to try to make sure that happened, but that was unusual. And I remember thinking then okay, this is a really positive motivator, but most of the time we do things to avoid a perceived loss or we do things because things have gone wrong for us and we need to try to make it better. And actually that is very explained by science because one of the strongest gearings of our brain from evolution is called loss avoidance. And the brain is two to two and a half times as primed to avoid loss as it is to get a reward. Wow. And because I guess from an evolutionary standpoint, why is that? Is there like an example from like early primitive days that that explains that? Yeah. So imagine that we were all cave women together and I said, Lindsay, I'm hungry. Could you go and, you know, gather some berries for us? And you said, well, no, there's a, there's a wolf roaming around, around outside. So I'm like, okay. And then eventually I'm like, Lindsay, I'm really, really hungry. Like, please, could you go? It would take us to be starving, to take the risk of going outside if we know there's a predator. If you knew that there was a predator and the risk of going out to get food that's not essential wasn't really worth it, you'd say no to me. So it's literally, yes, you know, I want a reward, but what's the risk to our lives to to go and get that? So it was more about avoiding death from hypothermia, you know, death from a predator. Whereas with starvation, you can actually last quite a long time. So even if you're in an uncomfortable position, if you know that there's a a quick death out there, you won't go for it. Mm. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, as we evolve and as there becomes less wolves out there, as there becomes less predators that are going to attack us, how within society, there's sort of new threats that constantly keep us in that state of fight or flight, whether it's perceived threats or real threats. Mm-hmm. Do you find that from an evolutionary perspective that that is like, what would it take for us to be out of that constant state of fear? You know, would we have to completely disengage from the real world? Would we have to stop watching the news? Like, is it possible to live in a state where we don't feel like there's a constant threat looming at all times? So you're absolutely right. And I love that you both um, have jumped onto the evolution sort of uh, story because it explains so much that really resonates with people because we can all think, oh yeah, that definitely would have happened to our ancestors. So the threats have changed from physical to psychological or social. Although that threat also existed because we could only really thrive as part of a tribe in the cave. And that was literally for physical warmth as well as affection and, you know, looking after each other's children and sharing responsibilities. Now, 
there aren't as many any in that way anyway physical threats to our sa- our safety or our life but the social threat of being rejected being lonely being abandoned um that's still very very strong in our wiring um and then other things because obviously now we have money for example that the idea of losing your job losing your lifestyle those have become you know sort of potential social threats to your safety as well and you know there's so many more but i would say that financial and relational have become the biggest threats to our safety so i think obvious examples of that are staying in a relationship where you're not really happy but you think well it's better than being single again kind of thing and because that wiring has been there for so long and of course in Lacey's work she talks about wiring that has been there since childhood for us as individuals and we have you know made it very clear that the longer an issue has been there the harder it is to bring it from subconscious to conscious and then deal with it this is even beyond that this is for generations and millennia so it's a very strong default and it it's really every decision that you make is based on is the world a safe place can i do this and still be healthy and happy and you mentioned a specific which is not watching the news well i don't know any neuroscientist that i'm friends with who watches the news and and that's the reason because because we're wired to default to loss aversion if we continually tell our brain that there's danger out there there's bad people out there there's accidents out there you will not want to you take the healthy risks that you could to make your life better because you're too aware of the possible dangers yeah i'm just thinking about this last year too and just how one the loneliness mm-hmm. isolation the over you know overconsumption in my in my view of the news and just mm-hmm. the increase in time that we spend on our devices online in the digital space and just how yeah, from an evolutionary standpoint, how that is like so not thriving with the tribe. Um, mm-hmm. no. I'm curious, like what you've what you've observed, like throughout the last year, and how we can begin to kind of like no, like rebuild that part of us. Like I, I know it's easy to just like oh, let's get together with friends, but I still think there is that fear, that like anxiety in social situations or being close to one another. So I would love to talk about that because I know that's kind of happening in real time for people. I think a, a nice way to think about it is that we've developed an appreciation for things that we may have taken for granted before. So I have been um, in lockdowns, I've been with one other person and it has certainly made me think. At first I was like, well, if I'd been on my own, I would have been fine. But as the months drag on and as it happens again and again, I just, my heart just is so out there for people who've been through that on their own, Mm -hmm. that is not a healthy state for us. And so a lot of the work I've done in the last year is to encourage people to bathe rather than shower Mm -hmm. because immersing yourself in warm water releases the same bonding hormones that you get from physical affection from a loved one. To massage your own body, to do gratitude practices that involve self-touch. So a lot more, you know, being a lot more proactive about the fact that you maybe have been isolated alone, but also even with one affectionate person or, you know, two or three affectionate people in your family, it's normal in a day to go out and shake hands or hug or kiss like eight to 12 people. And so that happens and you don't even really think about it. And they say that you need eight hugs a day just to sort of 
stay mentally stable and 20 hugs a day to grow as a, you know, as a person who feels healthy and happy and they can take some risks. So I think suddenly demanding 20 hugs a day from one person is probably, you know, so. <laughs> I do that at my house. I'm like, I heard it's eight seconds to release oxytocin. You have to hug someone. So maybe the eight hugs is the same one second. So maybe that's the eight seconds, a separate <laughs> hug. But I always do that. I'm like, we need to hug for oxytocin purposes <laughs> during the yeah, day. I think everyone should do that experiment. Is eight yeah. one second hugs yes. enough or do you need to do an eight second hug? I think that's a that would be a great result after this podcast if people went and tried that because it would, it would work <laughs> one way or another. And then I also think that interestingly, We've never really appreciated our sense of smell that much. We're, we're very visual and auditory. And so that's not a bad thing to sort of realize that for people who lost their sense of smell or just realizing that there's a disease that could make that happen to you makes us appreciate all of our senses and our brain much more than before. The device thing is tricky because if you didn't use it, you'd be completely disconnected from friends and work people. So I think in a way that technology has been the lifeblood of staying connected as a tribe. So we have to really view it as not a bad thing all the time. It depends how you use it. With the device thing, so with touch and as a bath, it's oxytocin that's released, correct? Mm -hmm. So if oxytocin is being released when you're touching someone or if someone's alone, they can do a bath. Then when you're on your phone, it's, is it serot it's dopamine that's released? So I guess what's the difference between, and this is my question. So what's the difference between the releasing of the two hormones and this oxytocin makes me feel more connected to someone because they're there physically and I'm having the touch and then I'm having that response of oxytocin released, but I'm on my phone and I'm not touching or feeling or looking at anyone, but I'm having dopamine released. So two things. One is that with a device that you touch, which a lot of our devices are like that now, there's something called haptic touch, um, which means you don't get touched back. So like if you touch a human, it's a mutual thing. If you touch a device, it's not. So, so there is a difference. That, that was just a small point I thought mm -hmm. I'd raise. It was interesting. When you give somebody really good eye contact, even through a device, it does have an impact on you. I, I like using the sort of, you know, the acronym of dose hormones, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins, but it's way more complex than that. So it's not like if you get a hug, you get oxytocin. And if you get a like on Instagram, you get dopamine. It's There's hundreds of hormones and neurotransmitters going around all the time. So we simplify it to, to help you know make sense for people who haven't studied science. So dopamine is what gets released when you get something that you want or you like. Oxytocin is the result of bonding. And that is better physical, actual physical interaction, but it can be paying attention. It can be proper eye contact. Serotonin is the mood hormone. So that fluctuates, but it should be within a normal range. So during the day, if something really good happens and it will get a bit higher, if something bad happens, you feel sad, then that's normal. That's good for it to fluctuate. Obviously, if it goes too high or too low, then that's not good. And then endorphins, which and all of these have, you know, so, so for example, actually the main reason that dopamine exists is for movement, but we're talking more about mental things than physical things. Dopamine is also massively um, part of motivation and addiction. So, you know, it's very, very complicated. Endorphins are the kind of feel-good factor that you get if you go for a run. That's probably the best 
way of imagining how you feel when you experience an endorphin, but it can be from other things as well. Mm. With the serotonin, just quickly on that, why would it be bad if your serotonin goes too high? Is it because it would we would assume that it would drop? That's Yeah, you fit that really nicely. But two things. I mean, as a former psychiatrist, I was thinking of um, bipolar disease where it actually goes so high that you're manic and you like you don't have... Um, you don't have a good idea of what's dangerous anymore because you're just, it's, it's so overexposed. And mm-hmm. things, you know, if you take recreational drugs that induce a lot of release of serotonin, then you get this huge amount of, of happiness at the time. And so we know from studies that were done on people who took a lot of ecstasy in the 80s that they were much more likely to become severely depressed 10 to 20 years later. So it's not a finite um, um, so it's not an mm-hmm. infinite amount of serotonin that we can produce and then less scientific, a bit more spiritual. It's, there is a pendulum swing. So if you go too far in one direction, there is a feeling that you will have to go in the other direction too. Mm. So it's all about fluctuations and a lot of mindfulness is based around regulating your emotions. So they don't go yes. too extreme in either direction. Mm. Can't wait to be depressed in 20 years after my, after my ecstasy, <laughs> after my ecstasy days. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like with your work with TBM, are you also working with the specific hormones to kind of describe ways in which people can successfully manifest and or uh, reprogram their subconscious? Is there kind of a yeah, are there ones that you're focusing on? I'm just kind of curious, pulling in the science because this is fascinating that certain hormones fluctuate, certain ones are ones that sustain. So I just would love to bring it into the manifestation conversation. So as far as I recall, because I did the writing work sort of last year and started it in the summer, I don't think I separated it in the writing, but on the podcast that I do each month, the Explained podcast, we've definitely talked about some of the different ones. So for example, in love, we've talked more about oxytocin, but also about estrogen and testosterone. We have talked about dopamine in in respect to numbing behaviors. So for example, if you have an unrequited love, so let's say you've had a breakup, but you still love the person, but they don't want to be with you, then there's evidence that substances like alcohol and <laughs> ecstasy. I don't, I don't know why we're talking about that. <laughs> Dude, you're talking about um, weddings. You're talking about ecstasy. You're just, you're just speaking my language today. <laughs> and co- cocaine, I'll throw that in there. So <laughs> that, Didn't like cocaine. That, didn't like cocaine. I say that. <laughs> Not my thing. <laughs> Whichever is your thing, basically, <laughs> lights up the same pathway. So it can reduce feelings of unrequited love, which makes sense of why when people have had a bereavement or a breakup, they're more likely to turn to things like that, that maybe they don't do all the time. Um, So yeah, I find the whole thing so fascinating. So we've kind of, when I've known that we have an episode coming up on a particular subject, then I've brought in the hormones or neurotransmitters that are relevant to to that topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The unrequited love thing is Mm -hmm. so interesting, like, because I'm just thinking about all of the women in particular, just in a heterosexual relationship where they're like called crazy, you know? And so there really is a science behind the kind of the addiction to the love or the feeling, which I think is so, so fascinating. Is there something that 
people can do when they kind of feel that feeling? Because I can imagine that that's a block in manifestation, especially if you're trying to manifest a relationship where Mm -hmm. your hormones are kind of um, influencing you to focus more on that like addiction to rather than a more healthy relationship that is meant for you. Mm. I think that even just understanding what we've just talked about is, is an important part of that. Because if you feel... Like whether it's that you're consuming comfort food or alcohol or whether it's that you're sending those embarrassing text messages that you wish you hadn't the next day, it's if you understand that there's a drive from your own hormones to make you do that, you can kind of separate yourself from it a Mm. little bit. Um, I talk about that a lot with cravings, which um, tend to actually be a lot more to do with nutritional deficiencies and a poor quality and diversity of your gut bacteria. And so when I coach people, I say, okay, if you feel like eating, you know, lots of high sugar foods, that's actually your gut, the gut bacteria that have gone bad, they need that sugar to survive. So is a bacteria going to tell you what to eat or are you going to decide? Mm. And I think that level of separation, because when you think it's you, it's quite hard to actually argue with yourself. Um, So you either give in or you don't. And then you have this whole kind of cascade of emotions that come after that. If you can separate yourself from it by one step like that, you know, is it me or is it the bacteria or is it me? Is it because I'm, because I'm craving because I've broken up from a relationship that's driving me to eat more chocolate and drink more wine? Um, It's not dissimilar to saying, I mean, I would say to you, let's say one of you had had a recent breakup and you were thinking of doing something that I thought you might regret later. I would say to you, Lindsay, what advice would you give Krista if she was about to do this? And even that one step of separation helps you to see, okay, I completely feel like this is what I want to do right now, but I know I wouldn't let my friends do that. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Powerful. Yeah, being the witness to everything, you know, to all of your all of your feelings. I've been feeling incredibly anxious lately. And I was like, in the middle of the night, I kept waking up and I kept having these like wild thoughts. And I'm like, oh, wow, my body is feeling the cortisol. My cortisol is still very high in my body right now. So my mind is trying to make sense of what my body is feeling. And it's sort of pulling these different scenarios and sort of like playing the tape of what it could potentially be that's making my body so upset. And just even that pulling Mm -hmm. apart of like, okay, this experience is happening. Like what is actually going on? And I think that's beautiful about the microbiome. I think about that a lot. I'm like, wow, my little bacteria love sugar. (laughs) They are grueling on sugar. And so you have to sort of replace those with ones that don't love sugar as much and then you end up not craving it. But I think that's a really powerful one. Um, Numbing was something I wanted to talk about uh, actually. And it was really interesting. I was listening to one from quite some time ago about um, where you were talking a little bit about numbing. And I want to just um, check and see uh, if this is what you guys were saying, you, Lacey, and Jessica. With numbing, numbing seems to be seem to be a symptom of old types of manifestation processes because you were just thinking your way into the experience. You were like, "I am rich. I am rich. I am rich," and you were because it was very conscious that you got tired of that experience because you were consciously doing something and it took mental energy. So you ended up, people end up numbing because they're looking for that release from that. Whereas with the new process of manifestation through TBM, it's more of the unconscious working. So you don't feel like it's, it has effort. Um, can you speak a little bit to that and correct me where I'm wrong? Hmm. So I agree with you that mental processes 
you're very aware of them and they are draining and you may wish to um, just to have a pause from that mental process. I actually believe that the subconscious work is much harder than the conscious work. So it can make you feel very tired. It can make you feel very hungry. But for some reason, I think once you're committed to doing that deep work, you know, maybe using Lacey's words, it's that your self-worth is a bit above numbing. So numbing is when it's all on the conscious level and your self-worth is low and you are trying, but you haven't gone deep enough to actually change, you know, those subconscious beliefs about your, your deserving and your worth. So it's easier to get a quick fix. Like if I have a glass of wine, then I won't think about this so much. When you're doing the subconscious work, um, and, you know, Lacey does say before each DI, for example, to take a nap or have a massage or have a bath or, you know, go for a walk in nature, that's to set yourself up as well as possible for that, that single, you know, sort of piece of work that you might do. But over time, people who are doing that kind of work are looking after themselves better. They are sleeping more. They are eating better. They are keeping themselves hydrated. So there's a lot further to drop before numbing becomes an option. Mm. So I think it is where, as you progress along the journey, that that becomes less likely. But I wanted to give you a fun fact about your gut bacteria. If you drink diet drinks that have like um, saccharin instead of you know sugar, the gut bacteria are so clever at surviving that they mutate and they absorb more sugar from your other food than if you just had a sugary soda. So it's quite complex. Wow, I've heard that before because people would say that fake sugars don't still cause weight gain because they would do testing Mm -hmm. on people that would consume Diet Coke and regular Coke. And they actually say that sometimes the people that consume the diet aspartame, sucralose, you know, all of those fake sugars often end up gaining more weight. And I wonder if that's why. Wow. Wow. Terrifying. Thankfully, we and don't I think, drink diet. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just as I was saying that, I was looking at Krista's can and I was like, what's hey, she drinking? <laughs> sparkling water. Dara's coming for me today. Okay. Purple sparkling I'm water. I'm my sparkling water, ma'am. Jeez. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I would love to, the, just for people who are just getting into manifestation work, what parts of the brain are being activated or rewired when we talk about subconscious reprogramming? So if you um, sort of imagine the brain in 3D, then there's this outer cortex that's folded that a lot of people have seen pictures of. And that's about as thick as your forehead. And then that actually curls around the limbic system, which is the size of your clenched fist. So it's proportional for each person. So my limbic system is that big. Wow. yeah. Cool. <laughs> so basically your spinal cord comes up, becomes your limbic system and the cortex is curled around that. And so those deeper, more intuitive, more emotional pathways are in your limbic system. And they're the ones that are really built by those early relationships with your caregivers. And we know this because some research was done retrospectively on the Romanian orphans that were in orphanages during Ceausescu's regime, many of whom were adopted into America later. America was particularly kind to these orphans. And the story is, it's really sad, that 
to make sure that they got adopted successfully and so and to make sure that they didn't catch diseases and things the staff were instructed to feed them wash them clothe them you know make sure they got enough sleep but but they were told don't play with them don't hug them don't give them eye contact because then they'll bond to you and they won't get a good adoption for the rest of their life mm. and 85% of those children grew up with mental health problems couldn't hold down a relationship or a job often if they had children they couldn't care for them so they got taken away as well it's really awful and so you know this was some sort of 30 years later that they were followed up and by that point brain scanning was available so they scanned their brains and saw structural physical deficits in the limbic system and then they went back to the notes and they went back to any of the surviving staff and asked some more questions and one of the things that came up was that there was a cleaning lady who said she cleaned between the cots and the one that was by the door where she left she knew she wasn't supposed to but she gave that baby a hug before she left for the day and they showed that the adults who had been babies that slept in that particular cot over the years that she had worked there were in the 15% who got married had families had jobs so the interaction with your primary caregivers when you're very very young builds the neural architecture in that part of your brain and if that's damaged through what lacy puts so nicely as pain shame or guilt then that's when things start to you know you see the world through different filters like the world isn't a safe place i shouldn't take that risk that won't happen for me mm. um and actually i heard something really interesting the other day which i hadn't really thought of before which is that it's it's common talk in our cultures to say life is hard you can't have it all don't ask for too much and and i it just made me think i've heard that we've all we've all heard that nobody would ever really say actually life is really easy or mm-hmm. i think i will ask for too much and see what happens i mean it'd be completely normal if you said to me tara life is hard for me to say yeah life is hard because that's that's infiltrated our culture so we believe those statements not just as individuals but as a culture yeah i mean that's my favorite thing on earth just kind of picking apart those type of things you know one of the things that we also say is um not to play or i want to play devil's advocate i'm like i don't want to be devil's advocate and so figuring out different terminology for things like that and today i was in my my workout class and i am very conscious to music of what music is being played and and one of the songs the hook was it ain't safe. <laughs> so it was saying it's not safe over and over and over mm. again. And mm. then the next one was like about being lonely. It was like I'm lonely. And the Ugh. next one was pulling up in the demon on God. <laughs> and it was just all of these things that I was like, wow, these are being filtered into people's subconscious because they're being yeah. played um as melodies. And that's, you know, a little bit of a, I just want to take a quick left turn on that. So what's, with music, can it infiltrate our minds so that it is kind of programming us or what's sort of happening with music? Yeah, music's very powerful. I mean, all of our senses are powerful. And if you think about the fact that Lacey's work is primarily auditory, that should already make us think about how powerful auditory work is. Obviously, there's the use of binaural beats and hypnotic suggestion but music can be hypnotic too so i mean i think it's probably no coincidence that all 17 year olds love nirvana i mean i'm probably giving my age away but you know it's that teenage <laughs> yes. angst kind of 
negative suicide kind of message. And I'm definitely one of those people that gets completely hooked on one song and listens to it a million times and then never listens to it again. And that hasn't always made sense to me why it's that song. But there's something called um, um, an earworm which is where you get like a song caught in your head and you keep going over the lyrics and you can't get it out of your head. And, you know, consciously that may not be related to something that you're experiencing, but subconsciously it could be. Um, actually, that reminds me, I wanted to come back to what you were saying about your cortisol levels and your brain trying to make sense of that overnight. Did you know that there was a worldwide phenomenon of vivid dreaming in March, 2020, which then occurred again in March, 2021? No. no, but it's weird because our community has been talking to us about that a lot. And we've oh. been having um, sleep paralysis. Yeah. I had that the other night for the first really? time ever. People have, a lot of scary. people are having sleep paralysis, but I, I kind of think it's cool. I actually don't, I think it's scary at the now moment. Now that I know what it is, yeah. I'm like, But I'm okay. trying to like integrate it to being like, oh, my my spirit is just sort of leaving mm-hmm. my body to do Yeah, work. that's that's what I thought. Because actually recently I was asked to comment on an article about lucid dreaming and I didn't really know that much about it, but because I'd seen that thing on Netflix behind her eyes. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> it's yeah. That threw me yeah. for a loop, but that that also like, I think was kind of cool for the lucid dreaming community. Yeah. Wait, for for <laughs> yeah. people that, yeah. that don't know, can you explain what it is? So it's a, it's like a psychodrama. Um, on Netflix, but um, the you don't realize that the kind of core um, theme and goings on is lucid dreaming that's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this really kind of wild plot around it. And you don't find out till the is end. Is it scary? Um, it's just like a psychological yes. thriller. So yeah, it's I'm, scary yeah. in that way. Dude, it's, not like, it's not like- They try and make gross. everything cool scary. But lucid dreaming in that way was- I didn't realize that. Well, I, I don't even know because it's a show, but can you switch like they did? I don't want to spoil so, it for people. Not like they did. So, you know, like in movies, sometimes things, you know, there's a bit of creative license to demonstrate yeah, a, a concept. Have <laughs> um, <laughs> you seen a movie? You know, but movies like, aren't real, right? But I'm like, I've seen some wild shit. We brought the doctor like, on to tell us, you know, movies aren't real. <laughs> I've seen some exorcism, so I don't know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, for example, in A Beautiful Mind, which was with, with the professor that had schizophrenia, they showed visual hallucinations because that's what you can show in a movie. But in schizophrenia, you don't get visual hallucinations, you get auditory hallucinations. So it was, you know, for me as a former psychiatrist, it was a bit wrong, but it was kind of, it was very impactful. So in, so lucid dreaming is actually when you wake up, you become conscious during a dream and you can direct what happens in the dream. And then like what happened to me the other night was I actually thought I had woken up and I could feel myself lying in bed paralyzed. And I was trying to like move my body and I couldn't. And when I woke up in the morning and told my husband, he said, no, no, that you were still dreaming. But I was like, no, I wasn't. But that's a lucid wow. dream where you believe mm-hmm. that it's real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so without, you know, doing any spoilers in the, in the show, it looked more like sleepwalking, but then it also went on to show people kind of, you know, having out of body experiences and things. So, but vivid dreaming is different to that. It's just, um, you know, lots of dreams, dreams that you remember, very visual. And 
in March 2020, they had a strong anxiety element, which is hardly surprising because of, you know, what was going on in the world. But what I just found fascinating is that that hadn't happened globally since the last, the two world wars. So um, to me, that's a little bit like what you were talking about earlier, which is how connected we are, Mm -hmm. how connected we must be. If, if that was happening to me in the UK, you in California, someone in, you know, Africa, someone in Indonesia, it's just incredible to think that at the same time, even though our lives must be so different on the surface, that we were experiencing these emotions and this is what our brains did to process it. Mm-hmm. I think there, we did a dreaming episode a few years ago and it was, um, her name was Colleen and her theory on dreaming was that it's tapping into the collective consciousness. So Mm. from like a human level, we're all here in the 3D, but when we dream, it's sort of bringing us up into the spiritual realm. And that's when we can tap in and get insights and sort of a lot, there's always thematic experiences to our dreams where people are sort of moving through things at the same time with our Mm. dreams, which is really um, beautiful. And it's interesting too, there's been studies a long time ago, not a long time ago, but uh, maybe in the last hundred years about, uh, they'll do testing on rats. And as an example, mm-hmm. they'll do a test on rats in Germany. Well, they'll shock them if they if they are in one side of the room. Mm-hmm. And they'll find that rats in different countries will sort of gravitate to the opposite side of the room where the rats in one country were being shocked. And it's almost like the experience oh, of us having, be able to have a collective consciousness experience as animals and as humans. And that's just, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. We're all so connected. And so when we do this neural um when we work with the brain and we work with manifestation, we're sort of doing it for ourselves, but we're also doing it for our children, mm-hmm. our ancestors, and for the collective. What's happening with, um, so from a neuroplasticity level, can you explain that? Okay, so neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to grow and change. And you see that very clearly in children from zero to two, where they go from being completely helpless and vulnerable to walking, talking, managing their own bowels and bladders. Pretty incredible. There's a lot of change that goes on during the teenage years as well. It's more pruning away of neural pathways that you don't need anymore and readiness for socialization and reproduction. And then we used to think that that process really slowed down or became quite passive from 25 to 60. Well, we used to think from 18. Now we know it's very active till 25. And what we also know is that if you do things to keep your brain flexible, it, you can make changes absolutely from 25 to 65 and maybe even beyond that. So I believe that manifestation is neuroplasticity. The process is, is underlined um, by neuroplasticity, which is that you have a certain way of thinking, behavior patterns, habits, and the more you repeat them, and the more emotional intensity is associated with them, the stronger those pathways become. Now, we can all get to a point in our life where some of those reflexes and patterns are, not, are no longer in our best interests, and, but they may have been there for a very long time. So as I said earlier, just even you know realizing something is kind of half the battle. So the process that I've described in the To Be Magnetic work well, which I've described in all my work is raised awareness, focused attention, deliberate practice and accountability. And I believe that raised awareness is half of the battle. And that is moving things from subconscious to conscious. Because if you don't know that that's your pattern, you can't do anything about it. As soon as you realize every time I have a breakup, I do this. 
every time I'm single and the wrong guy comes along, this is how I behave. Um, every time there's an opportunity for promotion, I don't put myself forward. You've got to be able to start to recognize these patterns. And then the second part is focused attention. And that's really what the journaling part does. It helps you to see what happens in different situations, see what's happened over the trajectory of time without necessarily making too much change. The, um, the actual DIs, which are the hypnosis audios, are the deliberate practice. And deliberate practice has to happen in real life as well. So it's, as Lacey says, it's the verbal, the action and the energetics. And her work really deals with the energetics to allow you to then go into the outside world and say, no, it's not okay for someone to say that to me. Or, um, no, I won't settle for that apartment because I really think I can get a better one for the same price or whatever it is. So then you start, that's like, that's really like a, a, a child who's crawling, starting to explore the world. That's the, all the way back that you go to, to do neuroplasticity. It's almost like being reborn as a different person. And the last piece is accountability, because if we were all left to ourselves to do this, there would inevitably be times where we were too tired or it was too difficult or something comes from left field and it sets us right back. And, and with that, I mean, everything from, for me, it definitely used to be when I traveled a lot that I would go out, fall out of my exercise regime and it would be harder to start again. That's a very tangible example, but there could be you know, much bigger things to do with relationships and emotions that get knocked off the path that you're on. And so having somebody or something through technology that keeps you accountable on the path that you're on just helps you. It's fine. It's normal to sometimes go off that path, but it helps you to get back on it quicker and make progress. Hmm. The the inner child piece, it just made me think, we, we interviewed someone the other day and she has always been so connected to her inner child. It's like she has always been connected to her six-year-old self. And I feel like we are kind of trained to, like you said, just kind of prune away parts of ourselves to be more mature, you know, when we're going in our, into our teen years, going off to mm-hmm. school, et cetera, et cetera. And then now in this manifestation work, we're like, okay, let's go back to our inner child and our younger self mm-hmm. and um, you know, kind of do the work there. So yeah, I'm just kind of curious what the, just digging in a little bit deeper on that inner child work and why that is so important and the connection to, um, yeah, our early life experiences, especially with our parental figures and how that affects our self-worth, how that affects how we relate to people and how we relate to opportunities uh, that are, you know, coming for us. Yeah. So one of the things that Lacey thought was really interesting is that you only really need one positive adult role model in your life to have that chance to grow your healthy neural architecture. And it doesn't even have to be one of your parents. It can be a teacher. It can be a social, um, you know, club leader or a re- religious leader. But basically, there is usually one person that stands out as the person that gave you love, that, that you, was a role model for you, for what you could, would be as an adult or what life was like out there in terms of how they resp- reacted to things. And like I said, the pathways that have been there the longest tend to be the strongest. You know, it's like neurons that fire together, wire together. 
There's even a body of research called Ghosts in the Executive Suite, which means that by the time people are CEOs, they're still being driven by these childhood patterns if they haven't been resolved. And so inner child work is about going back and resolving that. And it's not, oh, it's not like changing your memory. And this is one of the really like sticking points that we solved with the neurosciences. It's changing the emotion that you hold around certain memories or certain relationship patterns. So for example, if somebody raises the, their voice and that always sort of makes you shake and sweat, but you know, that could be for a reason for something that happened from your childhood, then you can't ever change the fact that there may have been domestic violence in your household when you were a child, but you can change how you feel emotionally and then how that shows up in your body when the same thing happens again later in your life. And you know, the way that Lacey suggests healing um, around that is that you go back to that moment and that you um, act as if you're the parent of your inner child and do, you know, protect the child from what they experience. So I think that's similar to what your, your mm -hmm. friend does. I wonder what's happening there with the brain then, I guess, with like the neural transmitters. I guess if there's a neural pathway that is incredibly active, that is the trauma experience that is sort of running the show, is it then, I guess, what's happening? So those sorts of trauma experiences relate to what we call the survival emotions, which are fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. And the disgust can be self-disgust. And there's a lot of self-loathing in people who have experienced abuse of any kind in their childhood. And those emotions correlate with cortisol and adrenaline, both of which um, over different periods of time. So adrenaline is very short term. Cortisol is, is sort of medium to long term, push you into the fright, flight, fight state. Or in the modern day, we see more freeze rather than, you know, you're less likely to actually run away or actually physically assault someone, but you're much more likely to be in a, an important situation where somebody asks you something that you actually know and you just cannot recall it. So your brain kind of tends to let you down in those important situations. And so the way that the nervous system works is that apart from the brain and spinal cord, of course, there are nerves that go all around your body into all of your organs, your muscles, and um, particularly large supply to your gut and around your heart. And so the nerves that are around your heart either through your heart rate, which obviously if it's higher, that's more likely to be to do with adrenaline, if it's lower. And so an adrenaline is the sympathetic nervous state, which is the fight, fight, flight state. And the, the slower heart rate, which is the parasympathetic mm -hmm. state, is the rest and digest state. So that's how you feel like after you've had a lovely meal. It's how you feel when you're really ready for bed. It's how you feel when you're just having chilled out time with your loved ones. Um, and so it can be two things. It can be that you're not very used to feeling like that because you didn't experience a lot of that in your childhood or because it's repetition and emotional intensity. It can be that there were periods of um, feeling perfectly at ease in your childhood, but the emotions are focused on these particular pivotal points of, of really, you know, see, seeing something negative, having a huge flood of cortisol that actually alters the way that your, your neurons communicate with each other and, and the way that your brain pathways go. So 
somebody who did experience childhood trauma is actually more likely to be affected by bad news, for example, that we were talking about earlier. And we know that people who repeatedly watched images of the Twin Towers falling on television, even people that had no connection to New York, didn't lose a loved one, that they could get PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the chances are that their threshold for getting PTSD was lower, perhaps, than somebody who had, hadn't experienced much trauma in their life before. Sorry. So if they've, if they have experienced trauma before, they're more likely to get PTSD again? Not again, necessarily. So if you've, let's say you experienced some trauma in your childhood that wasn't bad enough to give you PTSD, but it perhaps made you a bit more fearful or a bit more, um, a bit more likely to, to numb when you experience, you know, high emotions, then the chances are that, you know, because you're, brain pathways have been geared to be responsive to traumatic events. If you then reinforce that by watching traumatic events over and over again, there's a point at which mm. we'd all become traumatized. But if somebody grew up with lots of oxytocin and not much cortisol, their threshold for that happening is going to be much higher. Mm. Thinking about just what's happening right now and what's happened in the past couple of years, there's so many videos of really horrific traumatic things that are played on loop. Um, and I think that's a powerful point to that. Mm -hmm. One of the pieces of what you discuss in Expanded is the fact that there are different emotions um, or feelings that travel through different neural pathways. So I'm going to butcher this mm -hmm. a little bit, so I'd love for you to clarify, but I just thought it was fascinating because as humans you know, for example, envy and jealousy. I'm like, well, that, that seems kind of the same thing to me. Or, you know, there are nuances of difference, mm -hmm. but the fact that they are running in completely different neural pathways was fascinating to me. Again, it's that separation of, and just kind of stepping out of, I am jealous, I am envious, it's all bad. Mm -hmm. And understanding mm -hmm. that the two are, are very different and also physically, scientifically in your brain, very, very different. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. So first of all, the basic human emotions of which I only described the survival ones. So apart from those five, there's also surprise, joy, excitement on one spectrum and love, trust on one spectrum. Those basic emotions, we have not got identified pathways for how they run from the amygdala, which are the two almond shaped structures deep in your limbic system to the prefrontal cortex, but more complex things like jealousy and envy, which are a combination of different emotions and hormones and neurotransmitters. We have a bit more um, information about that from scanning. And actually, Lacey really helped me to clarify this, is that envy is when there's something that somebody else has that you would like. And jealousy is when you think that something that you have is going to get taken away from you. So the study that I talked about with the jealousy that was so interesting was with primates, advanced primates like chimpanzees and bonobos who um, bond in pairs, if the partner of a male or female bonobo is spending too much time with a bonobo of the opposite gender, that's when you see jealousy because you think my bonobo could actually go off with that single bonobo. So that's not envy. Envy is if another female bonobo has a really nice mango that you would like to eat. 
So when what we saw with jealousy is that it showed up on the same pathway as social rejection, which we started talking about at the beginning. Um, so that actually causes pain because physical pain and psychological pain show up very similarly in the mm. brain. And that's the reason that um, people with emotional trauma get addicted to physical painkillers because it does actually dull that pain. Mm. And then, and the envy thing was more connected to reward. So, so that was the difference. Yeah. And it was, uh, I, I did research that specifically for that episode and it was really fascinating. Wow. How can that play into manifestation? I guess those feelings and emotions would, is there a possibility to reprogram those or would those be leveraged or what would be the experience? There's, there's, you know, it's all about reprogramming. So that's what we believe that all of these things can be reprogrammed, but you have to be very clear about the use of language because otherwise you could be working really hard to program what you think it is. But if it's not actually that, then you haven't, you know, you either haven't surfaced the correct memory or emotion or you're, it's like, you know, trying to use the wrong tool to fix something. Hmm. I was trying to think of an actual example, but I'm not very DIY, so I, I couldn't, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about um, envy and especially in like manifesting a relationship mm-hmm. where like when I was single for a long time towards the end of it and I kind of got hip to the idea because of Lacey, you know, looking for couples that kind of gave me that feeling of envy and Mm -hmm. why, because I wanted that, you know, and kind of reframing that to be like, wow, I, the fact that I can recognize that for me, it felt like it could happen for me. And so I was just kind of calling in those expanders after expanders. And then I was able to identify more easily that healthy relationship when I came upon it. So, you know, if we're thinking, if I was thinking about envy before this, I'd be like, oh, that's a bad emotion. Like I should check yeah. myself, but yeah. it was actually something that was really helpful. Yeah. I mean, what Lacey says is that envy shows you what you actually really want. And, you know, a very practical way to think about it is turn envy into inspiration, which is what you do through expanders. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I was contacted by someone recently who said, you know, I'm in my early 40s. Because of COVID, I've lost my job. I'm back living with my parents. I'd really like to meet someone and have a family. And um, I've got to that point where I just can't be happy for my friends anymore when good things seem to happen for them all the time. So I said a few things about her situation and I gave examples of women, including myself, who had achieved that, you know, at her age or after. But then I said, you must, must not for your own sake, go down that path of not being able to be happy for other people, because that is, that it doesn't matter what happens around you. Once you've gone down that path, you could meet someone. And I've seen this happen to people, but you're just never happy because you've given into that, you know, envy and jealousy and it sort of, it just turns itself to something else. So, you know, then it could be, okay, I've got a partner, but I can't get pregnant. And then it could be, I've had one mm-hmm. baby, but everyone else has two. And, and mm. I, you know, I've, I've seen that too much. It's really awful. And I said to this person, spend time with people like that and just pour love all over them. That's the only way that it will work. And I can see from your smile mm-hmm. and your story that that's what you did. Yeah. Well, I'm just like, it is, you can, it's a, it's a 
true downward spiral that is so hard to get out of, Mm -hmm. you know, once you've given into that feeling and that's the lens through which you look at your life. It's like, yeah, it's really, really hard. So I'm glad you said that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once you're not in that phase of being someone that's not happy for other people, when, yeah. when you see people that are not happy for other people, it's really hard. Uh-huh. You're like, oh, that's a really unattractive quality yes. to have. It's, yeah. you know, I understand it, but I just am like, I know people that are like that. And I'm like, wow, that is not the vibe. Mm-hmm. Because you're no. not wishing well for people. I'm like, oh, that's scary. So what's happening there? Is it like an inner child thing where as, an, as a child, you felt like you'd be left behind? Or what's the experience there that's happening within ourselves that would cause someone like this woman to mm. not eventually end up not being happy for other people? Mm. I mean, it's definitely a scarcity mindset. So it's it's definitely the idea that if somebody else gets something, that means there's less chance for me to have it, which simply isn't the case for anything, whether it's like freelance work or a boyfriend or travel. So I think it comes back to what we were discussing at the beginning about loss avoidance. Mm-hmm. So cultivating that idea of abundance that there's enough resources out there for everyone allows you to feel perfectly happy for everybody else and keep trying to get what you want in your life. Whereas if you genuinely believe, and this could be because um, perhaps your parents didn't have much money or um, a, a huge topic we got into on Expanded that we never expected to was sibling rivalry. And it's a really big thing, mm. actually, that's not, mm. it's never talked about and it affects a lot of people. Um, not necessarily directly with their sibling once you're adults, but it plays out in these other things. So my best guess at why this person can't be happy for others is because they were at the non-receiving end, you know, the person that lost out within sibling rivalry. Mm. And often it's that, the other sibling was much cuter and people, you know, were always complimenting that child and not you or giving them gifts and not you. So that unfortunately, hopefully doesn't happen much anymore. But I think, you know, it definitely did sort of in the 70s and 80s, for example. Mm. So then you think, okay, because then you think it's always a comparison thing. So my brother or sister is cuter than me and more people liked them. So that was bad for me. Then you grow up and I've literally, I'm making, I'm I'm saying this as I'm thinking that then when you grow up, you think, well, if that girl's prettier or if that person gets the job, then that means I go without, I get less, I'm less loved. Mm. Whereas if you didn't have that element of sibling rivalry or you were the, the sibling that had, you know, the benefits of sibling rivalry, then it's easier to think, well, you know, I, I love my sibling. Yeah, I, I got this nice present or somebody said something nice to me, but you kind of don't notice that it's not happening to the sibling. But but having said that, neuroplasticity means that it doesn't matter which sibling you were, you can change how you choose to view the world. I think, you know, if my friendship group from, from school, high school, we've all had points at which we could have gone that, down that road of not being happy for other people or we chose to be super happy for other people, even if they were getting the things that we thought we wanted. So that is a decision that you make. And that, you know, for your own sake, mustn't be blamed on something from the past because it's actually very plastic and flexible. Mm. Yeah, I've I've been trying to figure out, and I, you know, I think I know what it is, but just kind of where my comparison tick comes from. It's like, I do think from a very young age, 
I don't think it came from my sibling dynamics because I actually think I was kind of the one that they were comparing themselves to because I was the oldest. But really, like I was put in dance classes and different things like that Mm -hmm. where there were these slight comparisons happening where I was like, why Mm -hmm. doesn't my toe point like hers? And like, oh, she got the solo and I didn't. And, you know, this happens to a lot of people where they're in activities or even in school. It's like institutionalized that there is kind of this comparison happening, this hierarchy, this like strive to be like fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And I think because that was like my every day, I was always in classes and activities. Like it, yeah, definitely became just a part of what I did was compare myself. And yeah, I've I've definitely become aware of that and, and feel much more in control now. But it's so funny how we're literally taught that in, mm-hmm. in so many ways. But I mean, that's not, that's not personal to you. That's because the schooling system praises for talent rather than effort. Yes. And, and that's the original research from Stanford by Professor Carol Dweck on fixed mindset and learning mindset. Mm. So if, if it was your only good, if you get 10 out of 10 or you come top of the class then you never actually want to try anything because you want to maintain your top score. Whereas if you're told, Mm. oh, well, you did so well because you tried really hard at that, then you want to try harder at other things. And then you're you're a person that's going to go out there and take risks. So I think that's institutionalized. Yes, completely agree. Wow. Yeah, how you mentioned earlier and we're sort of talking about it, but how can we keep our brains flexible? How can we ensure that we have the opportunity to rewire and reprogram and um, restructure our brains. So the foundations of that is, is sort of, you know, things that we have to do are sleep, you know, get good quality length and, and um, good quality and length of sleep, eat healthily and, you know, regularly keep your brain topped up with fuel, keep your brain hydrated, keep your brain oxygen. How exactly, what does does good quality food for the brain mean? And what Mm -hmm. does good um, water, like I guess, how can we keep it hydrated? Okay. So 75% of the brain is made up of water and of the solid matter, 60% is made up of fat. So the focus should be on good fats and hydrating foods in your diet. So that's like oily fish if you eat fish eggs, if you eat eggs, um, and then avocado, nuts, seeds, olive oils, obviously leafy greens, but particularly hydrating foods like cucumber, melon. And then the best foods for your brain are dark skinned foods. So like beets, black beans, eggplant. Mm. And the good news is that dark chocolate over 80% and organic coffee count in that too, because in the skins of dark foods, there's a, a, something called anthocyanins, which are really strong antioxidants that support your brain, protect it from inflammation, but also support growth of new cells. So I just try to eat as many of those things as I can. Also because of the gut-brain connection, fermented foods, so like kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi. And then, you know, just, just eating around that, the sort of right proportion of protein, fat, and carbs. So just not too much carbs, but some whole grains you need to make serotonin, for example. The hydration equation is half a liter of water for every 30 pounds of your body weight. So you need to work out what that ideal number is and then see where you're at at the moment. 
And if there's a big gap, just increase it by one glass of water per day over a sort of, you know, one to two week period. Otherwise, you're going to notice you're going to the bathroom a lot more. Um, I know that you're saying I'm... I'm going for you, Krista. <laughs> Tell <but> me more. <laughs> what's next? Sparkling water? Yeah, what's freaking yeah. next? Sp- sparkling water is not as hydrating as regular water. Dang it. Oh, I sort on. of knew that, but why? Yeah, why? It's the carbonation process. It's two things, because what you're actually drinking is water and bubbles, and the, and the bubble isn't hydrating. But also the carbonation process reduces the pH of the drink, so it makes it more acidic. Mm. <laughs> I love sparkling water. So yeah, dude, dude, she's the sparkling water I'm girl. The sparkling water queen. But I'm I'm actually so lately I've been we've been drinking Element. Element, which is like electrolytes, salts, no sugar. <sighs> but I've just noticed such a difference. Cause I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give up my sparkling water, but I'm gonna supplement with a little <laughs> bit more health or uh, okay. smart hydration. I knew that I knew there's something up with sparkling water. <laughs> But um, I'm curious too. Like, do you recommend? Because this is what what is hot now. We're in like the the space where we get a lot of products and et cetera. It's like nootropics, mm. yes. and supplements for our brain. And so, mm-hmm. is there anything that you're that you've heard of that you're like, yes, this is great. If you can take it, do. But I also worry sometimes that people are just hopping on a on a trend and a train and creating mm. products around it. I say that with love. Yeah. So I think we're on the same vibe. But So I am actually the chief science officer of a brain care supplement, but all that's in it is, uh, it's vegan. So all that's in it is algae oil with the DHA and the EPA um, omega-3s that you need, the vitamin B complex, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, um, iron, and a few other smaller things. So to me, the, you know, having the healthy balanced diet and then taking a supplement like that, that actually has the things that your brain needs enough of that you may not be able to get from your diet because of agriculture and non-organic farming and things like that is what you need to do. All the other things that are classed under the, you know, speech marks of nootropics, the phrase that I have for that is that they are like Viagra. They can improve your one-off performance, but they won't save your marriage. So, <laughs> got it. Yeah, it's it's almost funny to think about how I guess it would travel, you know, down our esophagus into our stomach, and then it's digested by the stomach, and then I'm just wondering how it would even get to the brain. Mm. I mean, blood? you know, most substances do not cross the blood-brain barrier, yeah. so mm. that's the first question I would ask. But yeah. then, you know, I mean, the medications that are used for um, ADD and, and dementia, they are abused under that banner of nootropics, but the long-term result is not good. And if you think about that movie Limitless, the guy, you know, accessed all of his brain power. Well, we can do that through hard work. You said, what's the best way to like promote neuroplasticity? The best way is to learn a new language or learn a musical instrument, but that's, that's hard work. Most people won't commit to doing that. Um, and other things are exercise and meditation and, and you know, what Lacey does. The, in the movie, what people never remember, which I, you know, I, I always re- try to remind people is that in the end, he stopped taking the pill because he knew how to access all of his brain power. So he did it naturally. And that's what I'm all about. Yeah. Do you believe what's that phrase that we only access 80% of our brain or like 60% of our brain? Do you, have you heard that? 
I've heard there's been a long time myth we only access 10% of our brain and there's actually been a movie made about that too Um, no we can we access different parts of our brain for different things so you know right now we'll be accessing our speech centers you know I'll be accessing my memory we might all be accessing our imagination um so I won't be doing some of the other things I'm capable of doing but if Mm. I wanted to cook a meal whilst I was speaking with you both I could do that Mm but that would recruit different parts of my brain. Mm. So fascinating. So good. I'm so happy. We Same. Last question for me. Combo. What about the pineal gland? What do you know about the pineal gland? Um, I call it the pineal <laughs> gland. I call it the pineal gland. And I'm the doctor. <laughs> hey, I'm the doctor uh, here. Uh, pineal. So... Doctor, but that might be my doctor. It's American, baby. I'm American. Pineal. (laughs) Tell me about the pineal gland. It sounded like something else to me, but we won't go there. Um, (laughs) Tell me about penises. (laughs) So um, that gland is the one that releases melatonin at uh, evening time. So about... We're supposed to live in keeping with the light-dark cycle. So usually about an hour before it goes dark, we release melatonin. It takes an hour to fall asleep. Because we use blue light devices, that's often disrupted. But I think what you're asking about is that sometimes on brain scans, if that's become calcified, it shows up as a white dot here because it's like it's deep inside the brain, but it's sort of basically it's behind the third eye. So a lot of people believe it's the third eye. Um there's no scientific evidence for that, but I think it's a nice thought. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's actually not good if your pineal gland is calcified, so it's perhaps better not to see it. But yeah, there's, there is a lot of spiritual talk about that. But I think it's just because if you ever see a scan and you see a white dot deep in there, then that correlates to what we think about as the third eye. Mm. And what I, I know the answer partially, but what calcifies the pineal gland? Um, well, so a lot of the, I don't want to say conspiracy theories in that I'm judging them as wrong, but you know, what people say can cause that is things like fluoride and toothpaste, fluoride and drinking water, mm-hmm. um, other toxins, you know, heavy metals that we can pick up like mercury through mm-hmm. eating like deep seawater fish and things like that. So it's basically a degenerative process. It shouldn't happen. Got it. And yeah, there are lots of theories about how and why it happens. Hmm. So, so it does seem a bit counter to me that that would then be seen as a spiritual thing to actually see your third eye. But, and I think, you know, considering that the third eye is about seeing inward, I would rather focus on a sense that's little known about that, but I think is so important to people, which is interoception, which is the sense of the physiological state of your body. Hmm. Um, and like I mentioned, children, you know, at first they can't control their bowels and their bladder, but then eventually they can. That's because we all know what it feels like that I need to go to the loo or I'm hungry. Um, And we learn that. But other things we don't learn as well are to listen to our body when we're fatigued, listen to our body when we're making ourselves sick through overwork or, you know, numbing. Um, And the, the problem with that is that you get used to being tired all the time. You get used to being sick all the time. And Um, You just don't listen to your body. So I think actually I did mention sensory integration and, you know, all of our senses at the beginning, but I think this inward sense, whether it's the third eye or not, is is important. And that's the reason that we do body scans, for example. 
Mm. Beautiful. Awesome. Love it. This has been so much fun. I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. I can predict our next interview now. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say, it wasn't long enough. That time went so quickly. I know, so quick. Well, I was already like, oh, we're going to have another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, so Where can grateful. our community connect with you if they're looking, um, they're looking for more? Oh, thank you so much. Um, so I'm most interactive on Instagram at Dr. Tara Swart and we're all friends on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I am friends with you on Twitter as well, but I don't really use it as much. I don't mm-hmm. think you do either. No. Yeah. Um, and then my book, The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, Science of the Brain is available on Amazon and in all major bookstores in the US oh, and the world, that. actually. Oh, I can't wait to get it. Incredible. Yeah. And you can listen to Dr. Tara on expanded. Mm-hmm. Those are I, the most popular episodes. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. think. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what Lacey says. And it's, it's yeah. just so, so, so good and fascinating. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. We thank you so you. much. You. Hopefully we can thank meet you. soon in person. Yes. Yeah, when you come over on this side, that would be so nice, mm-hmm. but we appreciate you I so much wait. and we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Lots of love. Bye. Bye. See ya. Thank you so much, Dr. Tara Swart of To Be Magnetic, taraswart.com. The book is the source. Yes. And for those of you that are podcasters, future podcasters, we just wanted to point you to our newest blog posts uh, that you can find on almost30.com in our podcast pro section. Podcast pro, uh, Krista and I created because we went through it all. We basically built this from the ground up and we hear from so many of you that just need the support and the guidance. And so we basically teach you all that you need to know in order to launch, grow, and monetize. But these blog posts are free and on our website and just provide a lot of valuable information for you. Yeah, you can learn about how we kept our full-time jobs, building almost 30, how to monetize your podcast, how to write special and amazing show notes. There's just tons of resources, information on almost30.com. And then we have courses and programs. We will be launching an accelerator. So two accelerators to support people Mm -hmm. that want to launch their show and then supporting people that want to grow and monetize their show this fall. And a quick thank you, thank you, thank you to our sponsors for this episode, sponsors that we love and use ourselves. Uh, Thank you for trusting us. Safe Sleeve, Array, Dough, Imperfect Foods, and Monday.com. You can find all discount information in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. Just scroll down and click on partners. Thank you all so much. We love you and we'll see you on the next one. We'll see you soon.